love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So four weeks in to the new year, I'm counting by Sundays, and you guys are probably making a ton of progress, right? We are probably living lives that are a little bit more gracious, that we have a grace-filled worldview, a little more like Jesus. You're probably living life with a little bit softer heart, with a little bit more of a gentle spirit. Maybe by this time you're living life with a more forgiving spirit. You're more quick to forgive and to let go of some of the offenses of the ancient past, maybe the, the intermediate past and possibly even the immediate past and that we're ready to really live like Jesus. Now, we're almost, I think, done with the whole New Year's resolution process with how we start correctly, how we begin right, so that we don't live life like we did last year. We don't want to be the same or unchanged. I mean, after all, we've spent almost an entire month talking about this, but I think that we've had a chance to get on the same page. So I want to end this little section of teaching and time together by discussing with you um, death. And what happens, how a Christian processes and perceives death. And um, it's kind of a subject that may be a little surprising to you. And, and maybe this time together will be a little different than most of our times together. And I know the message that I'm going to give you today is, gonna, is structured a little differently than some of the messages that, that I've structured before. And, and just basically what I want to do today is to tell you a story. That's not a story that I've made up. It's a story of something that happened to Jesus, something that Jesus did. It's a real story. It really happened. And there were real people who were affected in a real city, a real place, with real circumstances. For us, many, many years later, it's hard for us to imagine the place, the circumstance, the people, because we weren't there. We didn't know them. We just read about them. And unfortunately, we don't read enough about them. I wish we had a whole lot more to read about them, but we don't. We just have what the Bible gives us, and so we have to do our very best by studying every single word and phrase and chapter that's in the Bible and try to bring out all of the meaning that we possibly can. And this is a story that takes place in Jesus' life, and I think there are some parallels or some correlations between what the disciples, Jesus' best friends, were going through, what his followers were going through, what two of his really close friends were going through, and that was they were facing the reality that at some point this life will be over, and when this life is over, the only real decision that matters is the decision that we make about Jesus. Jesus had just faced the reality of death. Jesus, in, by the time of this story, had been attacked by the religious churches of the day, the Jewish leaders who were trying to kill him. You might ask why they were trying to kill Jesus. Who'd want to kill Jesus? Well, people who didn't like his message of grace, that God wanted to have a relationship with people like you and like me, not just the religious, shiny, perfect kind of people, the people with the pedigree born into the right families who came from the right place, but anybody could have a relationship with God. If they confessed their sin, believed who Jesus is, and chose to follow him as their boss, as their savior, as their, their Lord, and it made people angry who were trying to control the narrative, who were trying to decide who was good enough and who wasn't, who were setting the, the, the limits and creating the fences. And by this time, they were very angry at Jesus and had just tried to kill him. They had just tried to kill him and Jesus slipped away. Interesting, because a few times in Jesus' three-year ministry, the time when he went public with who he was, talking about the kingdom of God and talking about salvation and this unbelievable love, 
Several times people tried to kill him, and the Bible's very understated about it. They're like, they came in to kill him, and Jesus just slipped out the back door, right? He just kind of slips away, and he's really relaxed about it. The disciples, his people, his friends who were trying to keep him alive at all costs, right? I mean, they're freaking out. Jesus, you're going to die. You're going to die. We got to run, and he's like, just relax. Stay with me. I want to teach you some things that you have to know before you can fully be present in this life. And one of the things that he wanted his disciples to know so that they, we, could be fully present in this life is what we need to be thinking, our worldview, our philosophy about death and about the afterlife. And he said, until you come to grips with it, until you understand, you're never going to really be comfortable in your own skin here. They were listening. So we picked the story up. Now, for those of you churchies, if you grew up in church like I did, it's a familiar story. If you've been here at Cap City with me over the last five years, we've talked about this passage about two years ago. And as I was praying this last week about what to share with you guys today, um, this story just continued to come to mind over and over and over again. And part of it is because we've lost some some friends, some church members, um, some uh, pillars of our community some people we love this last week. And we have some who are suffering, who are sick, and who are likely to pass away in the next few weeks. If you don't know those who've passed here in our church, our friends, surely you have people in your life over this last year or two who've been touched by COVID, something else, something's happened. You've thought about it, you're dealing with it. It's a present reality, as we talked about last week, you can't watch the news without seeing the news of the celebrities influencers, the pioneers, and Jesus talks about it. In fact, he spends an entire chapter of the book of John talking about it. If you've already looked at your notes from the app, you probably are going to be disappointed because I'm not planning to cover them all. Maybe you'll be excited about that. First service, I realized that the story is the point today, and that's what I'm going to tell you. And I want to let Jesus' words and Jesus' actions not just comfort you, but speak to you in a way where you view this world and this life differently, where it gives you a little more power, a little more peace, a little more freedom to be fully present and to live the days that God has allowed us to live with purpose. So let's pick this story up. Remember, Jesus had just been chased from a town People were trying to kill him. They were creatively trying to kill him. They were doing it overtly and covertly. They were doing it in ways that were creative. Um, Jesus, it wasn't the time for him to go. He wasn't one bit stressed. The people he was close to stressed out of their minds. Getting toward the end of Jesus' ministry, knowing that his time on earth is coming to an end, not really having a lot of answers, but man, having a lot of questions. The story is in John chapter 11. And we're going to begin with eight different slides with scripture on them. It's a little different. I'm going to try to read these slides to you, these these passages of scripture, and explain to you as we go some of the power behind the imagery and the meaning of the words. Um, And my prayer is that God will speak to your heart as we work through this. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany place, by the way, where Jesus had just left because people, in fact, were trying to kill him. 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, I want to explain this to you again. Not everybody has grown up around the stories of all the Marys in the Bible. And when you say Mary in the Bible, most people would just think immediately it was Jesus' mother, Mary. And in fact, it's not that Mary. It's a different Mary. There were lots of Marys. Mary was a very common name. It came from Miriam all the way back to the story of Moses. Lots of Old Testament Jewish women and men named their kid Mary, just like a lot of people in the New Testament times did, just like a lot of people in our time does or do. And Mary was a common name. This particular Mary is mentioned a couple times in very profound stories. Uh, one of them was where you see her anointing Jesus' feet uh, with perfume. And there's another a whole story about that in the New Testament. This is a different story, but it's the same Mary. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the center, the capital. It was the, the place where if you were a Jew, you had to go several times a year. And if you were just a, a normal human in that region, you wanted to go because it was all happening there. It was the place where they had the best shopping, the best entertainment, the best speakers. It was the place you wanted to go on vacation. Jerusalem was a common destination for people. And this particular town was only a couple miles away from Jerusalem on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And most people believe that Jesus would have stayed in this town with Mary and Martha and Lazarus maybe multiple times. Maybe because they were such good friends, they hosted Jesus and his disciples, perhaps even cooked for them and hung out with them. They were close. He was from Bethany, Lazarus. So were Mary and Martha. The Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, significant here, it's important. There are three different words for love in the New Testament. The English only translates the word love by saying love, but the Bible, the, the Greek language, the original language that the Bible was written in, three different words for love. The first word is phileo. And that means a friendly love, a brotherly love, the kind of love that we would have for each other as buddies, right? Then there's a word, agape, and that agape love is the love that God has for us. It's the love of choice. It doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It doesn't have anything to do with appeasing. It has nothing to do with circumstance. It's that love of commitment because God loved us and we love others. There's a third word for love. It's called eros. It's the erotic love. It's a love that a husband and a wife would have for each other and unfortunately was used in ways that shouldn't be used in society. Um, but that romantic attraction, that strong force that draws you together. The first word here that's used about Jesus' relationship with Lazarus is that phileo. He said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus, your friend, is hurting. Jesus, your friend is in trouble. Jesus, your buddy, somebody who you've spent time with, somebody who you'd consider close, they need you. Interesting to me to think about Jesus having friends, isn't it? Sometimes we picture him as so task-oriented and focused and driven that he doesn't have time for anybody except his disciples who all line up behind him like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And off they work. It wasn't like that at all. Jesus was highly relational. And he had friends. And he loved them. And everyone knew it. So they sent word to Jesus, who was a ways away by this time. And he said, Lord, your buddy is sick. When Jesus heard this, he just simply said, the sickness will not end in death. 
It's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now we get really messed up about sickness. We, well, not just us, but even in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, they felt like if somebody got sick that there was something wrong with that person, with their family, somebody had sinned, they had it coming. There was kind of a cosmic karma, what goes around comes around and if you get sick, really in this life or maybe in another life or your parents' lives, you've done something to sort of deserve it. They looked suspiciously at people and thought if you had faith, you'd get well until they got sick, right? And then the whole scale shifted. They graded people a little differently. But the whole idea of sickness and death had been marketed and used as a mechanism of control by the religious elite of the day. Hung over people's heads as something to be feared, brought confusion and questions into the minds of the people who were following Jesus. And Jesus, through this story, is changing all of that. He said, this sickness, it's not going to end in death, for it's God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, the short version of this passage is, is that God has a plan, that he has a will, that he works all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he uses good things and bad things. He uses terrible things. He uses amazing things. He uses all things and works them together for his good, for that which is inherently moral, morally pure and good. Not the shiny trappings that come like paint on a house or chrome on a car, but internal good. And we don't understand. And he's communicating this to his disciples. There's something going on here you don't understand. It's above your pay grade, but I'm not lording it over you in that way. I'm connecting with you in it in this way. And he continues to show them. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What do you think? Which word do you think was used here? Agape. So for those who read this for the first time, who understood the language and got the nuances, this was a leaning in moment. This was a drilling down moment where the Bible says, yeah, they were buddies, but Jesus loved him like God loves his people. The kind of love that never lets go. The kind of love that never quits. It's the love of commitment. And the Bible says that Jesus loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, and this is what I don't understand, friends. This here in this story is what I've been scratching my head about all week. It's the stuff I want to change. He says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He stayed where he was. And in the middle of this particular verse, in this sentence, is where I ask so many questions to God. Why in the world does it appear that you are staying where you are when my friend is hurting? Aren't you paying attention? If I was God, I would. You ever start a conversation off like that and then catch yourself? Yeah, um, I do. I'm like, I know you're busy because there's lots of people to look at and lots of things to do, God. So if you need a little help, let me show you this. Why aren't you? And it's a normal human response because we're human. 
We don't have access to all the information. We don't see all of the factors. We don't know all of the contingencies. We don't understand God's plan. And most of all, we don't really grasp the fact that we're just part of it and that there's a whole world that goes on outside of us that we relate to but doesn't revolve around us. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, here is the first, um, well, it's the second, contemplation of near and imminent death. The first was Lazarus is sick. There was a messenger that was sent. By the time a messenger sent, you know it's serious. Mary and Martha were calling on their friend who they believed was God, as we believe is God, who they believed could heal, could intervene. And for whatever reason, because it was God's plan, at this particular time, he chose not to. This is the second near death or, or foreshadowing of death sort of experience because the disciples, they were concerned about protecting Jesus' life. They were afraid. There were people who were powerful, who were strong, who carried rocks in their pocket like some carry guns, who were ready to stone and to whip and to beat and to crucify anytime they felt like it. And so part of them was hoping Jesus wouldn't go back. We got a busy ministry calendar, Jesus. We probably shouldn't go back, right? A part of them was worried that they would go back and they would die. Because by the way, if you were an associate of Jesus, you went with him. If they were going to kill him, they were killing you too. It's just the way they went. So they appealed to Jesus. These disciples, people just like you and like me. He's reminding him, Jesus, a short while ago, the Jews were there. And remember, they tried to throw rocks at you until you were dead. And you're going to go back? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And I think the disciples probably scratched their head and said, well, that's a thinker, Jesus. If you want to change the subject, just change the subject. But my goodness, you took us for a walk way out into the deep weeds and left us for dead. Uh, it really isn't as strange as it sounds. It was a proverb that was known to the disciples. Jesus was using a proverb that, that they would have understood, just like if you and I use something from pop culture that you and I connect with immediately. And it simply means this, that all of us walk during the day. He was comparing day to life. And that at some point, night is going to come for each of us. And when we're walking by day, nothing can take our lives. Nightfall can't come until God allows it. So, even though none of us are looking forward to it in the way maybe that the Apostle Paul talks about. You don't have to be afraid of it because there's no defeat in death. And your days are ordered by God. And that as long as we're following God, we don't have to be afraid. He's saying, guys, you can come with me. You don't control the day you die. God does. We're certainly not supposed to. So live each day day in the now and live it to the full. So the disciples had to decide. It was a diverging path. You and I have to decide when faced with moments like this. When faced with the reality of the death of somebody we love or with the reality of our own deaths, 
And it's very simple and it's easy for me to say. It's so hard to do. And it's the question that Jesus asked over and over again, do you trust me? And the disciples continually said, I don't understand you. And I don't always like what you're doing, but I trust you. Let's move to the next slide and let me show you. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So his disciples said, awesome. If he's sleeping, that means he's going to get better because when you and I get COVID, I mean, we're going to sleep, right? When we get the flu, sleep. When you get a cold, sleep. Sleep's the best thing for a human. Give him some fluids, right? A little food, maybe he'll pop back to life and he's going to be okay. And Jesus had been sort of nice and nuanced and what he meant was that he was talking about death. So he told them plainly, read my lips, Lazarus is dead, right? I mean, I'm sure he didn't say it in a mean way, but a clear way. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Believe what? That the fear and the dread of the idea and concept of death will no longer have a hold on you. so that you may believe. And then he says, now let us go to him. Now, Thomas, the disciple who's known as the doubter, he gets a bad rap. Thomas is the disciple, he calls him Didymus, that means twin. Uh, he's speaking for the rest of the group. And Thomas is kind of a pessimist, but here I would call him the courageous pessimist doubter disciple. Because what he says is pretty cool. He's like, all right, Jesus, I've pushed all my chips in. I don't have anything left. I've decided to follow you. I've already told you, I'm not 100% sure what you're talking about some of the time. I don't always really feel comfortable with doing what you tell me to do, but I love you and I'm chosen to trust you. And so let's go die with you. Let's just go die, right? So he grabs the rest of the disciples and he goes, if it's going to happen, let's let it happen now. And let's look at the next screen. As they all arrived, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about the customs back in the day about um, funerals and death and things like that. Real quickly, it's interesting. Um, they didn't have funeral homes and things like you and I do, and so they had to handle things fairly immediately. When a person passed away, they had to bury them immediately. They put them in tombs that were often caves with uh, uh, shelves and things, and you'd have families that are there and friends that are buried there, and so it was a very common thing to do. And uh, they tried to do it as quickly as possible, but what would happen is the funeral itself would last for seven days. And as soon as the person passed, you'd have the community of people who knew the, uh, the, the family and knew the person who passed. They'd come around the family to show love and support the ministry of presence and to mourn with them. Sometimes they would even hire people to mourn because it was seven days after all. And sometimes people got tired of being there in that moment and you had to continually express grief. And so... Sometimes they'd have professional mourners that they paid to come. It was for seven days. On the afternoon after the burial, what they would do is fix a meal for everybody, but the meal couldn't be a good meal because if you enjoyed it, it wasn't appropriate for a memorial, which I disagree with, by the way. When you eat, eat well. They fixed boiled eggs and lentils. In case anybody might enjoy it, right? You had to be sad. It lasted for seven days. Then for another 30 days, 
they continued a time of mourning, but people had to go home after all. They were in their, you know, routines. They had jobs, lives, families. But they set aside time to remember the person, to tell stories, to sort of bring their memory back to life. And then on a yearly basis, either on the anniversary of the person's death or their birthday, depending on how they chose to, to celebrate, they would remember the stories, they would tell the tales, and they would remember the good times. And it's a wonderful, beautiful tradition that we still do today. The Jews believed that the body hovered over, the spirit hovered over the body for three days after death, and then off to heaven. So for three days, there was always the chance the body could come back. And that was mysticism. It was something that wasn't true, certainly not biblical. It's what they believed. So Jesus came on the fourth day. They were well into the period of mourning. They were well you know, into the events of, of um, well, this grieving. And Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem. So many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Now, here are two women who handle this in two different ways. And I've just got to tell you, um, I have not, when we're talking about dying, we're talking about death, um, haven't had anyone in my immediate family pass. My grandparents, I've had grandparents pass. I had a niece who passed. Countless friends who've passed away and as a pastor for 30 years have been involved in memorials and celebrations of life and death and dying more times than I can remember. Some of you have experienced it far too closely and far too recently and you know what I'm talking about. The Bible speaks to you and Jesus is speaking through this story to you in a way that I trust is going to comfort you and surprise you as he ambushes you with grace. Well, Bethany being close to Jerusalem, the crowd was there. Martha heard that Jesus was coming and off she went to meet Jesus. You see two different personalities. You see two different reactions to, to death and um, another diverging trail, a choice that has to be made. You have one who comes out to confront Jesus. Now, we only hear Mary talking to Jesus a couple times. The first time she's like, um, she's like, well, tell my sister to behave. Um, I'm sorry, no, Martha, tell my sister to behave and make the right choices. She's not doing what she should do. And this time, what she's saying is, if only you'd been here faster, Jesus, you could have taken care of things, you know? And so she seems like she's a little uptight. She seems like she's a little bit, you know, um, but she's talking to Jesus, but she ran out to confront Jesus. And then you have the other sister who's sulking, who's probably mad at Jesus who's probably um, filled with questions, perhaps dealing with doubt, chosen to stay home, chosen to withdraw. Two sisters handling a situation in different ways. Both are understandable, both are human, both are in pain because their brother passed. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, 
I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection in the last day. So this is a translation of that, a paraphrase. I know you're a preacher and you're a good one. And I know when I ask you a question, you always give me churchy answers. You know, I mean, she's hurting, right? And she did believe she had the correct Christology, the right theology. She was saying the right kinds of things. Oh, I know he'll be in a better place one day, right? Patting Jesus on the back. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Lean in. Listen to what I have to say. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though this life, this world, this biological function will pass away that they die. Whoever lives believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This, friends, is the point of this story. This is the point. The point is this, that when somebody passes, we grieve. And when we grieve, we grieve because it hurts. But we don't grieve as somebody who has no hope. We grieve as people who know true hope because Jesus conquered death. And death has no power or hold over us. That everyone dies, but as long as we're terrified of the thought and the process, none of us can truly live. And Jesus said, I have conquered death. If you believe in me, you don't have to worry about it. You will shut your eyes one day on this earth and breathe your last. And when you do, you'll open them to the reality of heaven and you'll see me, Jesus, with my hand outstretched saying, welcome home. You did it. You made it. You were good and you were faithful. He's like, what's so bad about that? But we miss them. And this is the cool thing, friends. Jesus says, I miss them too. And he shows it right here. He says, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and is going, come on, Mary. Jesus is here. Come on, Mary. I know. Come on. I know what you're thinking. I know what you feel. It's all right. He's not mad at us. He understands. Come on out. He's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not quite yet entered the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up, well, they had to go too, because after all, they were supposed to follow her wherever, or them wherever they went and help mourn. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Doesn't get any more real than this, friends. If only you had done something, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. A fair question. This is what Jesus did. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then here's the shortest verse in the New Testament. You want to win Bible trivia someday? You want to stump your friends, your neighbors, call your grandma and go, hey, grandma, what's the shortest verse in the New Testament? The shortest verse is John chapter 11. And here it is right here, two words, the verse 35, Jesus wept. And we go, oh, Jesus shed a tear, whatever. He didn't feel it. He understood. He was otherworldly. He walked in his feet, didn't touch the ground. And it's not true. The word here is so powerful. I would tell you it's pregnant with meaning, but that sounds a little cheesy it is so full of meaning. And what it means is that literally his heart broke in half. 
and he poured out with emotion, both verbally and non-verbally, and entered into and felt the pain. Not just the pain of the loss of a friend, but the pain that sin has caused in this world, the pain that death causes in separation, even though it's temporary, the pain that comes that Mary and Martha were experiencing, the pain that Jesus was experiencing. By the way, friends, the person who's passed, if they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if they have trusted Jesus Christ by confessing their sin, believing who Jesus is, and trusting him as their Savior and Lord, they're not sad. There's no sadness in heaven. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no sorrow. There's no grief. They're home, friends. But we're not home yet. And Jesus, he wept. His heart broke. But it didn't break because he didn't have hope. It broke because he was human as well as God. And he understands how much it hurts. And the Bible promises us in our grief. There are five times where we're promised God's mercy. And grieving is one of them. And then the Jews say, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he, the person who healed blind people, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Let's move on. The story even gets better. Take the stone away, the Lord said. But Martha said, look, by this time, there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see God's glory? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Unbelievable, powerful miracle. Lazarus came back to life brings a lot of questions to my mind. Where was he for these four days? Was he really upset that he came back? He's like, what, 30 more years here? Tradition tells us he lived for 30 more years right here on earth. We don't exactly know what happened to him, but we know he came back. Why? For God's glory. What did it prove, friends? It proved that Jesus had power to raise the dead. But it's not talking about the dead who die here on earth. First of all, he was foreshadowing his own resurrection as he conquered death. Secondly, he was talking about this resurrection that happens when you and I leave this life behind and death is defeated and we are delivered to the reality of our eternity in heaven and home. And he wasn't just telling his disciples, he was showing them. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. I have a dog, um, two of them. I showed uh, you guys my dog, my big one, um, Daisy, a couple months ago. Baxter's been kind of salty because I haven't introduced him to you guys. So he's had some conversations with me about um, why he hadn't met you guys. I talk about you all the time and he didn't know why he didn't get to say hi. And um, Baxter came to our house in an unusual kind of a way. He uh, our neighbors, you know, we had one dog, pretty happy with one dog. Our neighbors behind us, um, they said, hey, we got some, a friend with some puppies. You want to come over and hang out with some puppies tonight? And so we're like, well, sure, we'll come hang out with puppies, right? Um, we went uh, over to their house as a one-dog family. We came home as a two-dog family. My uh, wife fell in love with Baxter, and Baxter's been part of the Melick family ever since. Baxter's short. He's little. We got a standard poodle who's all leggy and tall and gangly, and she's 60 pounds or 55 pounds, and Baxter weighs about... 
I'm guessing about eight pounds by this point, and he's kind of short. He's short. We have a backyard, and in our backyard or our side yard, there's a privacy fence, and the privacy fence um, protects uh, Baxter from mysteries and wonders that he desperately wants to find. He lives absolutely convinced that there's something better on the other side of the fence. But Baxter can't see over the fence. He just knows there's something better over the fence. So he lives his life when he goes outside trying to find out what it is that's there, that he knows is there but hasn't yet seen. So Baxter paces the fence. He goes up one side, and he's just down at the bottom of the fence because he's a little bitty, can't really get up that high. Goes back this side, down the fence, looks for cracks and looks for knot holes so that he can see through, right? And see what he's missing on the other side. And he just knows that one day he's going to get there. We do our best to keep him from getting there. But there's just something in him that knows that the other side is far better than this side. And he looks for those cracks and those knot holes. Those cracks and knot holes in the Celts, early Celtic Christians, called them thin places, where we see the other side. I don't mean to be weird, like some movie that, you know, leaves you feeling all creepy. I mean like where heaven and earth just seem to get close together, where you have an experience or a place or something that just profoundly impacts you in your heart. They would have considered the birth of a child a thin place or maybe even a grandchild. Maybe a marriage to a spouse who you just can't believe chose to say yes. An accomplishment from a kid. Moments in life where heaven and earth seem to collide. Friends, how we process death and dying, how we process this trust in Jesus, how we process our lives and the end of our lives, whether we're willing to look over the fence and live our life with that reality in mind, it means everything. And until we get there, we're trapped. Not able to to live fully in this moment. Not able to move on to the next. And not accomplishing God's purpose. The disciples had a choice. As they faced their likely deaths. And Lazarus. Mary and Martha had a choice. Were they going to allow it to be a thin place? Or even the mourning, even the grief, even the suffering drew them closer to the Lord and grounded them even more strongly in the reality of this heaven and this life to come? Or were they going to let it drive them away? And friends, you and I have that same choice too. So I want us to live like Baxter, looking for the cracks in the knot holes in this world catching a glimpse of the world to come, living with that in mind that Jesus Christ has defeated and conquered death, that one day we'll be home experiencing the reality of heaven and reunited with those Christians who've gone before us. That's just the message I wanted to bring to you today. It's one I've been thinking about a lot this week because some of my friends have passed and it hurts And in some ways it's terrible, but in some ways it's beautiful just the same. Father, thank you for my friends.
And I pray that we as a church 